Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Welcome to LawPod. I'm Kevin Hardy, Postdoc Research Fellow at the Mitchell Institute and School of Law. And today I'm joined by Mohamed Rabani, a Mozambique from Cage. If we can begin by getting you both to just introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit more about CAGE. My name is Mazen Beg. I'm uh, the outreach director for the advocacy group CAGE. Um, I'm a former Guantanamo prisoner and have been prisoned in, imprisoned in the United Kingdom also. And Bill Marsh is a Category A prisoner under anti-terror legislation. Um, uh, interestingly, some people call me like the Forrest Gump of the Islamic experience and the reason is because I'm at all these different junctures of... of um, um, British and American adventures that have essentially in this new war on terror targeted the Muslim community. And that stretches from the most extreme example, which is uh, torture in Guantanamo, Bagram, and American secret detention sites, and all the way to something that seems as uh, uh, less invasive, like the PREVENT program, which essentially is a legal duty for people within the public sector, particularly <coughs> teachers, doctors, um, nursery teachers, to report on those individuals under their care who they deem through uh, some sort of training they've had, basic training they've had, to recognise the indicators of extremism. And I think one of these important aspects today about anti-terror legislation, and you know, we're sitting in Belfast where much of that was formulated um, has moved to a direction which is almost impossible to recognise. So this morning, for example, we were uh, going on a tour with a former prisoner who um, fought in uh, what he believed was a, a, a war of resistance. And in that war, there were uh, physical, there was physical violence, there was casualties and so forth. People were getting uh, killed. What's happening today is that there doesn't have to be any violence or violent intent for you to be regarded as an extremist or a terrorist, and these two terms are interchangeable. And so we have so regressed, not taking any lessons at all that are tangible from what happened here in, in this part of the world, where we should have known better, uh, and rather targeted people, created criminalized communities, the Muslim community at current, it, it, it sees itself that way. Um, and that is over 17 years of this war on terror, whether it's physically in Afghanistan, physically in Iraq, physically in Syria, physically in Palestine, or physically in Britain. Um, I think that part of it is, um, it, it's a continuance, it's, it's, and I think a, an endless war that is fought on in a very hot way in terms of you know, physical occupation, and, and in terms of the Cold War, is through anti-terror legislation. We've had 14 new pieces of law passed uh, in Britain since 2001 until now, and, and it's still rolling. There are still bills in Parliament that they want to pass through to try to determine the, the definition of extremism. They've introduced laws that will essentially spy on our digital 
um, um, information through the Investigatory Powers Act, and um, we don't really see any any end to it. There, there aren't enough movements in the country that stand up and challenge this, and that's why CAGE as an organisation has been doing all of the above, right from Guantanamo to prevent and everything in between. Um, getting former prisoners, people who survived um, various parts of anti-terror legislation uh, to be the voices and then our community behind that to, to stand up with them. And Mohammed? I'm, <coughs> I'm Mohammed Rabbani. I'm the international director at CAGE. I'm not the Forest Gump of the Muslim experience. Um, however, I am, um, unfortunately, a convicted terrorist, um, which I can go into uh, in a moment. My organisation, as you've heard from Marzan, is we've been around since about 2003. Uh, essentially, our role is three, three, three things. One is assisting um, individuals and families who've been impacted by what we call war and terror policies, um, and that can range from you know rendition, torture, all those, all the way to Schedule Seven, prevent, and other things. Um, secondly, it's to empower the Muslim communities in particular. Who sees themselves see themselves as suspect communities about um, empowering them with the right understanding, intellectual tools, uh, perspectives, um, but also legal knowledge um, to try to remove from the community a sense of fear um, and, and so forth. And thirdly, our role is to try to impact the conversation on national security and counterterrorism, to shift it, to introduce some form of some form of rational debate about this topic um, to, to, to see if we can move it along um, to some form of, um, you know, ending which, which is actually fair and just. So that's in summary um, what we do. Just um, in preparation for the day when I was um, reading about your organisation, one of the things that stuck me, as you said, CAGE is a human rights organisation. Um, not specifically or exclusively uh, protecting Muslim victims of the war on terror, um, not just supported by uh, Muslim victims of, of the war on terror, but that it is built on, I think your sort of tagline is it's built on a uh, notion or concepts of Islamic justice. If you could maybe just explain maybe for our listeners a bit uh, what those sort of principles are, because we might yeah. not in this sort of part of the world have a great uh, Understanding of, yeah. of Islamic notions of justice. So, so there are Islamic notions of justice. Pretty much, uh, most people recognize uh, basic concepts of <coughs> natural justice wherever you are, and and they they transcend religion and race and, and so forth. Uh, so we, as being Muslims, as part of our identity, we simply implement those, and we believe and say, as as the Quranic verses say, that um, be just even to those who are your enemies. Um, and stand up for justice, even if it be against yourself and against those who are close to you. So those concepts of justice for us are very important, but it is also important that we, in that concept of justice, challenge oppression. You can't just seek justice without seeking to challenge those in power that are oppressing. So, for example, again, according to the Islamic tradition, you know, the, the, the concept of the term jihad now is, is almost synonymous in the West with terrorism, but it is an Arabic term, it's an Islamic term, which can only be correctly understood from those prisms and we say that the best jihad according to the prophetic saying is speaking a word of truth against an oppressive tyrant and in that regard we, we focus our work um, through the Islamic position on, on seeking justice. We take our inspiration 
not just from Islamic role models, but from a vast array. Um, my colleague has recently look, written a book, uh, Asim Qureshi, um, called uh, A Virtue of Disobedience. And in that, he cites, as much as he does Islamic scholars, uh, Primo Levi. He cites uh, Walter Sisulu. He cites um, Steve Biko. He cites Nelson Mandela and Muhammad Ali and, and so forth. So we take our experiences of other people who've suffered injustice and put them against our own and see where we can learn from them, uh, expand their arguments and continue, uh, as I said, seeking justice, but ensuring that our principles are based upon our identity. Because in, in, in the midst of all of this, I think identity is, is important primarily uh, because one of the tools used by the government today is to undermine, remove your, and remove your, your, your very identity. In fact, what are they, they, they say is the markers, amongst the multiple markers there are for extremism, radicalization and terrorism, is that you have some kind of belief in Islamic ideology. And so that's why it's so important for us to hold on to it even more now than we did before. And was that a, a conscious um, trying to sort of reclaim that discursive space from, from the uh, powers that are driving the war on terrorism that you built it in that concept? So that notion you uh, touched <coughs> on that I've, I've read a lot on and a lot of people make about the whole sort of distortion of what jihad actually means yeah. and sort of the Western concept that is, uh, Islam is, is bad, it's inherently evil, yeah. which of course it isn't. Is that are you trying to discursively sort of shut that, reclaim that to sort of reclaim your your own sort of language from the the uh, distortion uh, yeah. by by Western? You've said it right. It's almost an appropriation, a misappropriation. Like there's been cultural appropriation of multiple things from Western nations, of things that are not just Islamic, but also from Africa or from China, and then sold back to them as if it's uh, you know this is Western. What's happened to us here now in terms like Islamist, Islamism, jihadist, jihadism. Uh, these are Islamic terms. We understand them as people who live the experience and who, who are from that community. If somebody then seizes this language and puts a, a, an ist at the end of it or an ism at it and sells it back to us as something that's bad, um, it is a form of cultural misappropriation that we must challenge because if we don't, we lose who we are. And, and as I said, part of this is building our identity and standing up for who we are um, and pointing out to the government, by the way, that it's not that you ever believed that jihad is bad or good. You supported the Mujahideen in Afghanistan when it suited you. You supported and supplied the Mujahideen in Afghanistan with a blowpipe anti-aircraft missile system. Um, and your allies, the Americans, supplied them with the Stinger and so forth. You supported the Libyan rebels who fought under the Islamic banner um, with the RAF. You supported the Free Syrian Army when it suited you. So, and all of these guys said they were doing jihad. So it's not as if you don't understand what jihad is, you do very much, um, but you appropriate it and misappropriate it when it suits your interests. And then just, uh, I know that you, you want to talk about your, your forthcoming case, if you want to tell our listeners a bit about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just briefly, the, there's some important legal implications, potentially, for journalists, for researchers, for um, even academics and others. <coughs> The case uh, revolves around a power called Schedule 7. It operates at borders um, across the UK. Um, it gives the, the police the right to um, detain a person and interrogate them without having the right, um, the right to remain silent. 
um, hold them up to for, for up to six hours. Um, but uh, one form of the detention includes strip searching, fingerprinting, um, even, um, and the entire sort of how it's um, one of one of the, the things about Muazzam um, was mentioning about you know our concept of justice and things. I mean, one of the ways we express it here, which we think is very consistent with what's commonly known as the rule of law, you know, the, the fact that the law should apply equally to everybody, including the state and all, all of its arms. Um, so in Schedule 7 is an example where the rule of law, with its principles which you need in order for the rule of law to be applied, they're not present. One of them is that there's no suspicion required to actually stop someone and deprive them of their liberty. And there's, there's absolutely no suspicion required. So people can be held without, I mean, so it's not internment, obviously it's not arbitrary detention. It is a form of arbitrary detention, actually, although it's for only maximum six hours at a time. But someone, let's say in my experience, you know, I've been stopped more than 20 times under this power, and I'm not unique in this. Each year, on average, about 50,000 people are put through this, on average, since the powers were introduced in the, in the year 2000. So um, what happened was uh, essentially I was uh, traveling back from abroad working on a case. This case has now actually now been made public, but at the time we were uh, protecting it, the confidentiality around it. And I was asked by the police officers to surrender the passwords to my phone and my laptop, and I refused on the basis that I was in possession of confidential material. So that refusal led to an arrest, which then eventually a few months later led to charges under the Terrorism Act, which then I had to answer in court um, last September. And the judge, though she confirmed that I was protecting confidential information, the police officers who came and testified confirmed that they stopped me without any suspicion. Um, but she had to find me guilty. Uh, and the reason why that is is because the law, when it was drawn up, was drawn up so broadly, and this, this links to an important part of the discussion about law, when it was introduced at that time, um, I mean, although it was drawn up in 2000, but when it was implemented, there was a, a knee-jerk reaction, which is understandable, even if it's not just or fair, it's understandable, but then it's been um, exploited um, because the, simply the powers exist. So under the law, I was found guilty um, of a terrorist offence, and um, tomorrow I will be uh, going to the High Court in London to appeal that decision. Um, if we win the argument, then it means that for people like journalists and researchers and academics and human rights activists or organisations, they'd have a level of protection which is consistent and um, outside of the border scenario, like gen normally you've got some protection, like there's Data Protection Act, there's um, legal privilege, there's other types of protections for, for this type of material. Now, all those protections are just disregarded when someone's stopped under Schedule 7. So that's what we're trying to actually secure in, 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 the, in the end, you know, hopefully. It's an interesting point you made about these laws being introduced in, in 2000 and the knee-jerk reaction. One of the things... Uh, it's always sort of struck me when I study sort of the genealogy of, of modern sort of anti-terror legislation, even though we know it came from the Emergency Provisions Act, Prevention of Terrorism Act, mm -hmm. but sort of 
we've had the move from talking about terrorism to, to now extremism. And if you look particularly at uh, attacks of the Terrorism Act 2006, we've moved really on to the, the glorification offences and mm. the dissemination. So it's basically not the doing now, but even the thinking or the possible yeah. saying. Uh, in terms of suspect communities then, how would that sort of impact on the ground and the sort of communities and people that, that you engage with? So that's a very interesting point that you make because, you know, the, the classic textbook de- definition of terrorism is the use of violence for an ideological aim. Now, if there's no use of violence or intention to use violence, then how does it become terrorism, a terrorism at all if you want to impact something through ide- ideology or through belief but through non-violent means? How is that extremism, how is that terrorism, and how do you even define them, these terminologies? And so one of the things that's happened, as you rightly cited, the, the glorification of terrorism act is a case in point. Uh, a young girl called Samina Malik gets convicted in 2008 partially because she has written a poem. She calls herself the lyrical terrorist and she writes some poetry that glorifies uh, people who are fighting in Iraq against British soldiers. So that may be disliked by the British establishment, fine, but is it an act of terrorism? Is it enjoining? Is it um, uh, causing people to rise up and become violent towards the states for a political uh, um, uh, goal? And of course, the answer is that if that is terrorism, um, how far do we go? Another guy called um, Ahmed Faraz gets convicted for publishing books, that some of which are treatises that were written in the 8th century AD on the concept of jihad. He goes to prison. Both In both cases, they both go to prison. In both cases, the, the, uh, they're quashed on appeal. But a, a British jury sat in on uh, and uh, initially gave a guilty verdict in these cases that are not related to anything to do with violence. Um, and so what this is doing now, or has done to our community, with that and, and a series of anti-terror legislations, which began with internment, and I, I think it's important that we get this right, in 2001, 16 North African and Middle Eastern men were interned in British prisons under emergency legislation, uh, detained with it. So we talk about, let's bring back internment. We know what internment did in Northern Ireland. Um, but it's, it's happened in the UK. Uh, it's happened in, in you know, Belmarsh Prison. And there are, uh, you know, in, in that particular case, after three years of detention without trial, they were, th- their detention was ruled to be uh, unjust by the House of Lords. Then they implemented, after the July 7th bombings, even though none of these men had anything to do with that, primarily because they were in prison at the time. Um, but that didn't stop them from introducing something called control orders, where they're essentially in house arrest in, in, in Britain, not Burma. And uh, th- they remain there un- un- under these conditions that um, that are so uh, intrusive that uh, later it's ruled that the, the, the internal exile aspect of it, you could be ex- exiled internally from where you live to a place you have no connection to. Uh, and so all of this, slowly but surely, uh, degrades the society and internally the family structure of those individuals targeted and their communities and wider Beyond that, start these stories start getting disseminated. People start hearing what's going on, mm-hmm. and and it it, it 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 frightens the community. It makes people afraid, and it tries to um, put them in a position whereby th- even 
challenging the state here becomes a problem. You, you are regarded as an extremist if you challenge the state. So let's quickly give two, three examples of how this widening of the sort of goalposts, you know, originally started off with violent acts, and as they say, went on to glorification, dissemination. And now this phenomenon of extremism, I mean, it's just not a concept that's defined at all anywhere in law. There has no definition. There's no agreed meaning. I think the the sort of the, the Home Office initial document defined it as something that was contrary to the British values, which yeah. I mean, if I preach redistribution of property, British well, values yeah. are based on capitalism. Yeah. If I David preach radical feminism... Yeah, he, he actually said an active opposition to British values, which include, uh, you know, ironically, uh, op- opposition to the rule of law. And we can argue, well, the rule of law is detention without trial. It's happened to me, it's happened to other people. Mm-hmm. Where's the rule of law then? Uh, opposition to democracy, um, mutual yeah, respect. Supporting dictators uh, across yeah. the world. So, so, so every aspect of that you could turn back on to them. Yeah. So actually, you, according mm-hmm. to this definition, mm-hmm. you're an extremist. So, just, so there's like two things happening. One is the, the discourse has become uh, conflated. Um, so terrorism, extremism, radicalization is all thrown into the mix and it's all very fluid and uh, anything can just become a terrorist. And policy is also reflected. So first example is in the UK there's the main strategy is called contest, as you know, and it has four strands. So counter-terrorism strategy in, in one of the strands is prevent. So prevent, however, focuses not on actual violence. It focuses on ideas and thoughts, sometimes practices, you know, religious or cultural practices. Cage published a report two years ago. It's called The Science of Pre-Crime. And there we were able to get hold of a study done by psychologists where they concluded the study with this list of 22 indicators. Now, these indicators were indicators of extremism. And the idea being that, you know, if some of these indicators were present in a person, this person will eventually become a terrorist or likely to become a terrorist. So, I mean, it has, you've got a... Brussels theory, it's, it's... It's it's really wild. I mean, it's it's minority report sort of territory. Um, so, so there's an example of how in policy, although it is counter-terrorism, but actually in practice it's counter-extremism. But what is extremism? It's, it's you know, so... There's some research, I mean, if someone Googles it, you'll you find all the information there. Second example is the, uh, only six months ago, I think, we um, published some leaked documents that were given to us. Um, they're called Counterterrorism Local Profiles. And these are uh, documents or guidance notes issued to local authorities. And uh, the ones that we saw and we published include groups that are identified as um, extremists, they're animal rights groups, anti-fracking groups, some Muslim activists, um, left-wing activists. Now, all of them, if you look at them, nobody's involved in violent action. There's no terrorism going on. There's no suggestion that it's going on. But it's a counter-terrorism local profile. So that conflation, it's in policy. So, um, and the third example is this whole area of executive power that operates outside of the rule of law, outside of the judicial processes. Even in the law, we're finding problems. But this set of powers is outside of that. And these are, we call them broadly civil sanctions, where um, citizenship can be deprived of an individual, where the individual has, cannot see the evidence against him. Usually it happens when somebody's travelled abroad and they receive a letter from the Home Office to their home, 
and a family member opens it and sees that, okay, Mr. So-and-so, we think you're linked to a group that is linked to Islamic extremism. And it's very, very carefully worded. The evidence, he'll never be able to see, he can't challenge it either, he's outside of the country. So there's a set of powers that are being exercised which are outside of any judicial process involving secret courts sometimes mm -hmm. where secret evidence is used to make a determination and obviously harm um, individuals, right? So all of that is under this thing called extremism but it's all conflated with terrorism. So that's the direction that we're going, and that, 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 that's so, what I'm and so so that your you know listeners understand the civil sanction in in these cases uh, range from outright uh, revocation of nationality. So you're left stranded in a particular country that you happen to be in, and you are told, and this this reflects upon the actual racist um, application of. Uh, the civil sanction because it suggests that because you are the descendant of um, Asian or African immigrants, you have the right, even though if you don't actually have the physical passport or document, you have the right to apply for that document from that country of origin of your forefathers. Uh, and therefore, the British government can take away your nationality at, at, at a whim, uh, evidence that you can't challenge. Mm. And you are left essentially stateless. But that won't and can't happen to an, an English person. Right, it can't happen it's to impossible. A, it can't. Yes. So that's the that's the, the unless it can be shown that you have a a grandfather that came from an Asian or an African country, that your passport, your nationality can't be revoked. Whereas it can for somebody like myself or him that has grandparent that came from uh, Pakistan or India or Bangladesh. So that's one aspect of it, but the others are your passport removal, something that's happened to me under the royal prerogative, which is a, you know, in our great democracy, um, twice in, in, in 10 years. Now, again, you can't challenge the evidence. It's just a determination made by the Home Secretary from the powers invested by the Queen to, uh, And in addition to that, to that, you've got exclusion orders that stops people coming back into the mm -hmm. country. Um, and so all of this is part of the civil sanction um, regime that exists that is in addition to the laws that, that exist. So those are the those are the powers th that the government have in addition to the the laws that are being used regularly to prosecute and to criminalize the community. I mean, there's some great traction there with what you guys are saying with some of the stuff that I would see with uh, some of the people I work with, some of the people uh, I interview. So uh, I know you some um, had some sort of engagement with the Craigavon 2 case which I've, I've mm -hmm. kind of worked on with them yeah. uh, Tony Taylor at the moment we have the whole um, closed evidence procedure which yeah. isn't really a trial but it, it fits mm -hmm. the matrix of trial but one of the, the interesting things and I see the parallel is you said in the two cases it was a British jury decided that these two people were guilty of these uh, quote unquote terrorist offences now yes here we had internment and internment with uh, internment by remand now Initially internment, we, we didn't have a trial, but even with internment by Ramam, where basically you're lifted and the charges aren't going to stick, but you're able to, through the, the sort of elongated nature of a trial, you'll um, you draw it out and you might have somebody in jail for 18 months, two years before the charges fall. But in any sort of uh, cases, uh, the political violence cases that fall under the, again, quote-unquote terrorism sort of matrix, it was always judge-only trial, so you didn't yeah, have the courts. idea of, yeah. a, of a jury. But in these cases, there were juries. Does that tell you sort of in, in how 
I wonder if that says something about the, the British psyche, the British national imagination, how it's been conditioned by war, the war on terror to look at Muslim yeah. suspect communities. I think it's very interesting. This morning we were talking with, with a friend of mine who's a former Irish Republican prisoner, and he was one of these people that was literally sent down when he sent, you know, sent from the courthouse to the jail across the road. And um, a juryless court. Now, one of the things we hear of Western civilization is, is, is the legal system in Britain is par excellence because of this 12-member um, jury system that you have um, that will dispense justice. You know, it is the one thing that, that remains from the Magna Carta that you will be judged by a court of your peers, right? And, and that you can't be detained arbitrarily. But I think uh, this, you know, clearly in the case of the shocking case of the Craig Oven to the the cases of the internment and, and beyond before that, the Diplock courts, that this was already happening here. Um, and I think they wouldn't have been able to find, not from those communities anywhere, not from the indigenous communities that were there, a, 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 a jury of the peers of these men who would be prepared to, to, to find them guilty. I think that would have been a big problem, so that's why they introduced it. In England now, with the Muslim community, it is easier, much easier, to find a jury because of the drip, drip, and open anti-Muslim um, rhetoric that is fed in every day by politicians, by the Murdoch media, and by sensationalism, that the ordinary person on the street feels it's okay. As Baroness Warsi, who was like the, the, the co-chair of the ruling Conservative Party at the time, said that uh, Islamophobia, anti-Muslim hatred, has passed the dinner table test. You can sit at the dinner table, talk about EastEnders, Coronation Street football, and how bad Muslims are, uh, as, as a normative practice at home. And that was before the rise of ISIS in, in, in Syria, which has now um, exacerbated all of the anti-terror laws. So this is the, to find a jury who will really not be affected by uh, what we hear every single day is, is almost impossible. And the media have been found particularly the right-wing tabloids, have been found guilty multiple times for creating stories, headlines that are fake or not true or partially true, and uh, feed into that narrative. But, of course, they want to sell papers, and, and as a result of it, we pay the price. Just to, uh, we quickly returned then to preventive. You could basically say a few words on that, because that's sort of one of the, as our listeners will know, there's huge implications for that in academia in terms of the discussions we can have with our students, that... Uh, in terms of people basically being spied on, people feeling even uncomfortable to, to, to voice a, a dissent view. If you could just quickly give us a, a bit of a on the ground from, from the perspective of, of the people you work with. Uh, one of the things I found uh, early on, was, as, as my colleague said, that we, we challenged Prevent from before it became law. We were looking at some of the government's statements and about what they wanted to do in regards to how to identify extremism or radicalisation. Um, and, and we knew that this was going to come, and we, we'd been warning about it for quite some time, and when it did come, uh, there wasn't enough opposition within uh, groups for it to be challenged correctly in Parliament before it was made law. Um, prior to this, pre Prevent was just a guideline for schools and, and, and other places in the public sector. Now it's, it's essentially a, 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 a law that you must, uh, if you're a teacher, a, a nursery attendant, a doctor, a prison officer, report on those individuals you think may have become radicalised. And what does radicalised mean? Because the suffragettes were radicals and Mandela was a radical and Martin Luther King was a radical. So how do you determine what, what is, what isn't? Um, 
one of the things we found as Cage and others, um, that the greatest opposition that came against uh, the Prevent Agenda and programme was from the teachers' unions, the National Union of Teachers, the uh, Union of uh, Colleges and Universities, uh, National Union of Students themselves, they were the boldest, and we they organised with us a tour called uh, um, Preventing Prevent Students Not Suspects, Educators Not Informants, I mean, very powerful statements they were making. And one of the things we found was that a new marker had been added as to how you determine somebody is or isn't an extremist, and that is your op- your opposition to prevent. If you oppose prevent, then you are also a, um, a an extremist. And one of the the headlines I still remember to this day, and we we wear it with pride, is the Daily Express said that Cage is mobilizing an army of doctors, uh, students, and lecturers um, against prevent, and that's one of the reasons why we are extremists. So what an army we have. Guys, thanks for coming. That was a really great conversation. Uh, Best of luck with your case tomorrow. And listeners, if you want any further information on CAGE or the issues we've been discussing, if you could please check show notes. You've been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law, students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Richard Somerville and Kevin Hardy. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. LawPod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. Thanks to Mohamed Rabani and Mozambique. You can follow us on social media. We are on Facebook and Twitter at QUB LawPod. For more information, you can also visit our website lawpod.org and please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Kevin Hardy. This was LawPod.